Revelation chapter 5, starting verse 8. And when he, referring to the Lamb, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And here's the reason. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed. You redeemed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You may be seated. Lord, we ask you to please help us. Help us. Uh, your word says that we who are evil give good gifts to our children. How much more you, who is perfect in love and in power, would not give us the Holy Spirit. So we need, we need your spirit to understand spiritual things. Help me. Help me to be faithful. Help this wonderful congregation to be faithful. May all the glory be given to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Imagine this picture with me, and I don't claim any originality over this picture here. Uh, I'm a man of very little originality. Uh, but picture with me, it's a Sunday. It's a Sunday, raining Sunday, a lot of rain. The stadium is packed. World Cup final. Real, real football. <laughs> what you guys call soccer. But real football. We play with the, our feet. I, I just don't understand that, but that's... <laughs> so let's just picture World Cup final. Brazil against France. The stadium is packed. Thousands of people. The rain is pouring. They had established a very worldwide well-known preacher who was going to come in the halftime and be able to share the gospel with the whole crowd. And without hesitation, the evangelist comes. He has an umbrella and he has a Bible in his hand and he reads from Exodus chapter 24. It says that Moses took the blood and threw it, sprinkled over the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant. And then in Exodus 24, goes on to say that then Moses and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 of the elders went up and they beheld God and they ate and drank with God. They had a feast with God. And the preacher, the evangelist, as he's reading, he can see that the whole crowd is paying attention to this very interesting passage. And he says, my dear ones, as he's looking around, look at the rain pouring over us. Look at how all of us have been sprinkled with the rain. In this text, Moses has sprinkled all Israel with the blood of the covenant. And then instead of dying and perishing in misery, they were invited to a feast. A table had been prepared. And the rain makes me think of the blood of the, the bowl that Moses sacrificed and then he sprinkled over all the people. And he says, there is a greater blood that was sprinkled over all Love us here. There is a greater blood that was sprinkled over every single one of you. 
just like the rain today. And I want to tell you today that there is a feast in heaven. There is a feast in heaven. This game is momentary, but this feast is for all eternity. And like this rain, Jesus has sprinkled all of you with his precious blood. Jesus is the only mediator, not Buddha, not Gandhi, not Muhammad. But Jesus is the only mediator, and he has died for us all and shed his blood in order for us to attend this great feast. So please, I beg you, do not disappoint the Father. Don't make the Father sad. He has prepared a place for you. And don't make the Son broken heart. He shed his blood for you. So I cry out, accept Jesus right now. Invite Jesus into your heart, and you will enjoy this feast for all eternity. And you will not perish in heaven, beholding your blood-sprinkled face. And then the evangelist finishes the exhortation by asking those who want to accept Jesus to raise their hands. Some people in the stadium with tears in their faces, they raise their hands. So the preacher prays, and he leaves. The message of that preacher touched the heart of the most powerful and important subject of all, the message of salvation. The subject of for whom Jesus died, the atoning death of Christ. The question that we all must raise is, what did Jesus accomplish on that cross? What is the purpose of the cross? Did Jesus die for every single person? What did Jesus, what did, honestly, what did Jesus accomplish? Did he just make us savable? Did he make us redeemable? Did he sprinkle his blood on everyone so everyone can have the power now to say, I choose Jesus? And there are two answers for the question that we are thinking, for whom did Jesus die? What is the purpose of the atonement? There are basically two answers, basically, in, in Orthodox Christianity. The first one is that Jesus died a general, universal, unrestrained death for all men. And thus he made all mankind savable. The other option that we hold in this church is that Jesus died a peculiar, limited, definite, and particular death for his chosen people. The vast majority of the people, especially in America, they hold to the belief that Jesus died for every single person in the world, even for those who are in hell. They say that the Savior died even for those who are perishing under God's wrath. Like the evangelist of our introduction, most Christians in our country believe that the blood of Christ was sprinkled over all people. And by doing that, Jesus did not accomplish anything. He just made people savable. The difference, according to this understanding, the difference between those who go to hell and those who are saved is what they say, the freedom to choose and accept the invitation. And of course, to support this view, they will have some scriptures to back up. So there are those scriptures, for example, John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
or First Timothy 2, 5 through 6, Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Or Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, saying that Jesus takes death for everyone. It's such text that they use as support for their understanding that Jesus died for every single individual. But the question is, do this text support this understanding? Every text out of context is only what? A pretext for something else. And we must always keep a text in its context, and not only in its immediate context, but in the whole context of the Bible, because the Bible is one book. I believe that instead of putting a, a group of verses here that seems universal and a, a group of verses here that seems particular, what we should do is just to look at the whole story of the Bible. We need to look at the whole drum of the Bible. We need to look at the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation. There is never a doctrine that can be formed apart from the whole of the Scriptures. And today, as we continue our journey here through the L, as we are talking about what it means for us to be reformed, and we saw the soul as now we are walking through the, the five points of the doctrines of grace. We saw, first of all, the T, and that's where mankind plays the role of depravity. Sin has contaminated us, infected us in such a way that no one, no one seeks God. No one is powerful enough to save himself. And you saw that that's the bad news. The good news is good news because there is bad news. Amen? There is never good news apart from bad news. And the bad news is that man is, as Jesus says, it's impossible with man. But the good news is that we have a God, a triune God, who is merciful and mighty. He's powerful to accomplish what we cannot, and he's merciful to provide that for sinners. So we saw that as you understand the T of total depravity, our only hope is the U of unconditional election. We need a God who is merciful enough to choose people to be saved because we don't deserve by nature. We need a God who will do something for us and in us. And the first thing that God does is for us by choosing some to be saved. Nobody deserves heaven. Nobody deserves heaven. Everyone deserves hell. That's the bad news. So we study the doctrine of sovereign election, unconditional election, predestination. And it's beautiful. It's powerful. But election and predestination, they don't stand alone. Predestination and election... They cannot save anyone. Amen? In theology, there is something called the order salutus, the order of salvation. Especially in Romans chapter 8, you can see Paul talks about those who are predestined, called, justified, sanctified, glorified. There is an order in the process. And the first step in this order of salvation, you can say that's election, predestination. But it's not enough for the Father to have just chosen some. We need something else. We need redemption. We need atonement. We need salvation. We need propitiation. And that's the work of Jesus Christ. We need a Savior. And that's what Jesus does for us. And that's where we are. 
as we stand here at the L, right in the middle of this acronym, we come to the, I believe, the most glorious subject of all, the salvation of our souls. And here we stand, studying the death of Christ. We stand at the highest mountain. And from there, as we were singing earlier, we surveyed the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And I pray that our richest gain be counted but loss. And I pray that we all will pour contempt on all our pride as we behold the death of our glorious Savior. Amen. So here's the outline of what I plan to do is today just cover the definition of limited atonement. It was J.C. Ryle who said uh, lack of precise definitions is the very life of religious controversy. Lack of precise definition is the very life of religious controversy. So we need to be precise with our definitions here. So here we come to limited atonement. What does it mean? What does it mean? What are we studying here? The question is, for whom did Jesus make the atoning sacrifice? Did Jesus die for those already in hell? Or was his death only for those whom the Father had predestined for salvation? Did Jesus die for every single person or for a specific group of people? Did Jesus die indiscriminately for a blob of people? Or did the great high priest have his people's names engraved upon the ephod of his heart? When he went to the cross, did he have the name of his sheep? Or he had no names? Just a mass of unknown people. That he would hope that someone in that mass would one day choose him. So that's where we come. That's what we are going to be dealing with this next Sundays, today, and the Lord's willing next Sunday also. So let's first define the word atonement. That's what we are talking about, limited atonement. What does it mean, atonement? Atonement. The English word atonement, at one moment, means the bringing together of two parties that have been enemies into a relationship of peace and friendship. And that captures the idea of atonement. Of course, if you, if you go to the Old Testament, there is a fabulous place where you can understand atonement, and that is the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus chapter 16. So if you want to understand atonement, you can go to Leviticus 16, and then there you have the Day of Atonement. And there you understand, as says Leviticus 16, 29, and it shall be a statute to you forever, Leviticus 16, 29 through 30, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, and you shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for on this day shall atonement be made for you, to do what? Cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. So you start seeing the atonement is this work of God to cleanse his people so he can dwell with them. Robert Gerbro, he says, he defines atonement as God's work on sinners' behalf to reconcile them to himself. It's the divine activity that confronts and resolves the problem of human sin so that people may enjoy full fellowship with God. We can say that atonement is God's work in cleansing, forgiving His people in order for fellowship between holy God and sinful men to be achieved and maintained. 
And as you think about, there are other words. I'm not saying they're synonyms, but they're related to atonement. So words redemption, propitiation, salvation. Those are words related to atonement. So we could say limited redemption, limited salvation, limited propitiation. That would be completely fine. So we saw the words atonement. God's work in cleansing his people, purifying them, forgiving them so they can dwell together. And what do you mean by limited? All right, so here's the word limited. What does the word limited mean? In English. <laughs> Something has limitations, right? There are restraints. That's what there are restrictions surround some, surrounding something. And that's what we believe. The limitation in the work of Christ is not related to the power, but the scope, the extent of the death of Jesus. Amen? What we believe in limit is not limiting power. We never limit the power of Jesus' death. But we limit the scope, the extent, how far it's going. And I just want to say that and I think you have in your bulletin, every, every Christian, Orthodox Christian, will somehow limit the death of Christ. The question is if we are limiting the power or the extent. Okay, so, for example, uh, here is from Michael Horton. He has this good way of looking at So, the extent of the atonement. So, here you have the first one. The thesis is that Christ saved every person. And then the extent and nature, it's unlimited in extent and effect. So that's what we call the universalist. So sometimes you see a universalist church across the street, and what they believe is that everyone is saved. There is no hell. Hell is empty because Jesus died for every single person, and everyone thus shall be saved. But we know that's not the Orthodox view. Then there's the second one. Christ made the salvation of every person possible. And then here there is an unlimited in extent, but it's limited in effect. And that's how most Christians in America see the death of Christ. And then there is the third, that is Christ saved all the elect. So it's limited in extent, but no limit in power. That's what we believe. So just so you can understand a little bit of what we are dealing here. First, the first group is called universalists. And that's we'd call unorthodox heresy. That's what denying the doctrine of hell, eternal punishment, is that Jesus died for everyone, thus everyone will be saved. Okay? And, and that has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. Uh, the second view is the most popular, that's called Arminianism, and that's because of the students of Jacob Arminius. The, they were the first ones to develop the, this view publicly confronting the reformers, or we have Amiraldianism from Moses Amiraldius, another leader who came up with this view. And they say that Jesus Christ died for all the persons of the world. That would include Esau, Judas Iscariot, Hitler, and all those in hell. Jesus died for everyone. According to this view, Jesus died for everyone just to make salvation possible. They make a distinction between what Christ accomplished and what he did. What he did was he died, but what he accomplished, that's a different game. So let me just give you an example. So Lewis Perry 
Schaefer is one of the co-founders of Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, well known for his systematic theology, dispensationalist. He says, Christ's death does not save either actually or potentially. Rather, it makes all men savable. So according to this view, man is the one in charge of limiting the death of Christ. It's man's free will that limits the, the power of the death of Christ. Yeah, so you can see another Armenian scholar. He says, Jesus Christ died for all people, therefore all people are savable. All men potentially can be saved, but only those who appropriate the death of Christ by faith will actually realize the salvation. And then he used the, the, the analogy of the polio vaccine. And he says, you see, the polio vaccine is powerful. It's efficient, but you need to go and take the vaccine. You see what he's saying? It's just like the death of Christ. It's powerful, but you need to go and appropriate. The problem is that no dead person can get up and go take a polio vaccine shot. You're dead spiritually. You cannot do that. That's where the, the, the whole analogy breaks down. So Jesus did not save or redeem anyone. He just made everyone savable and redeemable. That's the second view. And the third one that we hold in this church, different titles, Reform, Calvinist, Particular, Limited View, that Jesus died an atoning, powerful death for the elect of God. God is the one in charge of limiting the death of Christ, not man. So when we talk about limited atonement, we are talking about the limitation of the extent, the scope, no, no limit of power. Jesus' atonement is of infinite and unlimited value, worth, and power. He saves sinners from the uttermost depths of sin. There is no sin too difficult for Jesus. Amen? So we can say that the atonement of unlimited power is limited to a group of people. So we, when you're dealing with the death of, death of Christ, we always have this to make a choice between the quality and the quantity. Christians always limit qualitatively or quantitatively. Qualitatively is we are limiting the power, the efficacy. Quantitatively, we are meeting, we are dealing with the quantity, the extent of Jesus' death. And the extent is always related to the intent. Amen? The extent of Jesus' death is always connected to the intent. That's why it's so important to know, what did Jesus accomplish in his death? Did he truly bring forgiveness of sins? Did he truly save? And when we understand the the purpose and the intent, then you understand the extent. Because if he truly died to save people, like we read in Revelation 5.9, to redeem a people for himself, then either he died for a specific group or everybody will be in heaven. I love what Joe Owen, the Puritan Joe Owen, he wrote the masterpiece on this subject. It's called The Death of the Death in the Death of Jesus Christ. I literally had to read that book three times. But it's a wonderful book, helped me a lot. The Death of Death in the Death of Jesus Christ. And what he shows us is that here's how 
we can summarize. Christ died for, and here are the options, all the sins, all the sins of all men. That would be the universalist. Jesus died for all the sins of all men. The second option is that Jesus died for some of the sins of all men. And here's where he did not die for unbelief. Right? Because you need to believe, and that's your, it's out of the cross that. Believing is with you, now it's God. So he died for some sins of all men. And the third option is that he died for all the sins of some people. And that's where we hold. We believe that the Bible clearly states that Jesus died for all the sins of his people, his flock, his church. So the doctrine of limited atonement affirms and declares that Jesus Christ in dying, he bore the sins of his people, his church, enduring all the punishment that was ours. Jesus gained by his meritorious death, forgiveness, righteousness, sanctification, and eternal glory for a large and definite number of people, all of whom he knew, foreknew, and he was joined before the foundation of the world. That's what the Bible teaches, we believe. Of course, there are some objections, right? So what are some of the objections to the doctrine of limited atonement? We, we love singing the hymns of Charles and John Wesley. I love his, their hymns. Wonderful hymns. They wrote hymns like a real Calvinist. Because they wrote hymns according to the scriptures. That Jesus saves. But it's interesting that they hated the doctrines of grace. And especially limited atonement. It said, uh, John Wesley once said, uh, if that was true, the Bible to present Jesus as, an, as a hypocrite, a deceiver of the people, and a man void of common sense, of normal sincerity. He said that God would be a, very cruel. Another scholar, more present, he said that the doctrine of limited atonement truncates the gospel by sawing, sawing off the arms of the cross. Because now Jesus' arms are not wide open to receive every single person in the world. But it's tight to receive just a few. So those are the accusations that we receive that saw off the arms of the cross. And that's why, the reason why is because people, they paint a picture of humanity as if humanity is longing to be in heaven. As if sinful humanity loves Jesus. They have this idea, this picture that they, all these people who are perishing in hell, actually, they, they love Jesus. And the problem is Jesus. Jesus is too, too stingy. Oh, if God had just loved more, they are all longing. Cry, I want you, Jesus, in hell. That's far from the truth. No man seeks Christ. No man loves Christ. They run away from Christ. Look at our society. They hate God. And now you're going to say that they love. Oh, if, oh, you see, if Jesus had died forever, everyone would be running to heaven. This is a, this is a distortion of monumental proportions. 
The Bible is clear that no one seeks or desires the Lord apart from regeneration. The whole idea that people are in hell crying and weeping because they wanted to be saved, but Jesus was stingy and miserly in his death is ridiculous, completely unbiblical. People in hell and under God's wrath, they are gnashing their teeth and they're weeping of anger at Jesus. They hate God's holiness. All right, how about unbelief? All right, you ask people, yeah, do you believe that Jesus died for all the sins? Oh, yes, Jesus died for all the sins. Do you believe that Jesus died for everyone? Yes, Jesus died for everyone. So everyone is going to heaven? No. You need to believe. Then you ask, but isn't unbelief a sin? Uh, yes. Didn't say that Jesus died for all the sins? How about unbelief? Uh, suddenly, unbelief is not a sin that Jesus died for. And that's just messed up. Unbelief is a sin like any other sin. And unbelief was paid by Christ on the cross. That's why we believed. Because He forgave us. And in time, we received the faith that God gives us as a gift. So Paul says, let me just move here. Paul says, for by, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And what? This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So even our faith, our belief is a gift of God, meaning what? Our unbelief was paid for Christ with his blood at the cross. And in time, we receive a heart to believe and trust. Rob Bell, he was the founding pastor of Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids and was one of the main leaders in the emerging church movement. He said that when Christ died on the cross, he died for everyone and everywhere. He says in his book, Velvet Elvis, he says, Heaven is full of forgiven people. Hell is full of forgiven people. And heaven is full of forgiven people. Hell is full of forgiven people. Heaven is full of people God loves whom Jesus died for. Hell is full of forgiven people God loves whom Jesus died for. The difference is how we choose to live. Live. Which story we choose to live in. Which version of reality we trust. Ours or God's. And and you may say, but that's Rob Bell. And there are some other Christians. We still hold that Jesus died and he paid for the penalty of all the sinners, even in hell. So Mark Driscoll, he has a book. And, and for me, this does not make sense. Saying that with a professor from Western Seminary, he says that Jesus died and people in hell are reconciled to God. And they're no longer rebels. I'm like, how can they be in hell and be reconciled? It just becomes so confusing. But that's what happens when you start trying to come up with something that's unbiblical. Another object, objection is, how about all the verses that say world and all and everyone, right? So, for example, we saw, behold, John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of what? The world. Aha! You see, Jesus died for the whole world. Amen. Amen. What does world mean? 
You see, you're quoting John. In the, John is the author in the New Testament who mostly used the word cosmos. That's the Greek for world. Just in the Gospel of John, he has 10 different ways of using the word world. Imagine that. Just in the Gospel of John, he has at least 10 different ways that he used the word world. So you need to understand what does he mean by world here. So, for example, the first category, we, I'm just going to give three ways that John used the word world. The first one that he used cosmos is for creation. So in John chapter 1, right in the beginning, he says that the world, the cosmos, was what? Created by the word, the logos. And he's talking about the created order. So one of the ways that we see world in John is referring to the theater where God is going to accomplish the work of redemption. Another way that John used the word world is to emphasize the scope of God's redemptive work. In other words, he did not die just for the Jews, but for the Samaritans, John chapter 4. For the Greeks, for the Romans, for the Gentiles. And I believe that's what John is saying. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not Jews only but people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Because he takes away. It's not that he might take. He takes away the sin of the world. We know that because if you go to 1 John, that's another text that they throw as if we never read this text. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if, you, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is, look at that, He is the propitiation for our sins. What is propitiation? Yes, the appeasing of God's wrath. He is our propitiation. He appeased God's wrath. And then He says, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So you see, either Jesus appeased the wrath of God for every single individual all over the place, or he's talking about something else here. And we understand the false teachings that were going on in, in, in the churches in Ephesus. It's very clear that what John is saying is that Jesus is not like a local tribal deity who has just one little group of people. He has people whom he purchased globally from all over the place. And in this passage, when you compare with, with John eleven fifty two, 52, you see how very similar the structure in the Greek house, and you can see here in the English, how very similar the structure of the sentence is. So in John eleven fifty two, 52, remember Caiaphas, the high priest, saying that Jesus, and he's explaining, that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now compare this verse with 1 John 2.2. 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Implying, not just our tribe here, but the sheep of God scattered abroad. So we saw in Revelation 5, 9-10, Christ died a powerful death for His people who are scattered around the world. 
So, the third category of the word world in John, just so we don't get lost, that's the last one. And that's very important. A lot of times John used the word world as referring to unbelievers who will remain under God's wrath. It could refer to the world system and can also be to people who are not elected of God. So, for example, in John chapter 17, verse 9, he says, I'm praying for them, the chosen ones, the disciples. I'm not praying for what? The world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So, brothers and sisters, if Jesus is not praying for this world here, he cannot be dying for the same world. Amen? Because his office of high priest is one and we cannot divide. How about the word all? So, for example, in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Do you see? All men. But read the context. Paul is talking about older men, older women, young men, husbands, children, wives, slaves, masters. All types of men, yes. All men. That's what Paul is saying. Jesus died for everyone without distinction. That's the question. Did Jesus die for everyone without distinction or for everyone without exception? You see, everyone without distinction means that Jesus died for all kinds of people. Men, women, old, rich, poor, young. Without exception would mean that our Savior died for every single individual person without any exception. And we do not hold to that. And as I said, we could just spend hours looking at different verses, the verses that they say, they see, here's all, here's world, here's everyone. And then you can bring the other text that says, oh, Jesus died for the church, Jesus died for his elect. I think there is something much better to do, as I said, as we look at the story of the Bible, as we look at the drum of the scriptures, as we look at the doctrine of God, the doctrine of salvation, it becomes very clear that Jesus had a very peculiar people when he came to die. So what I, what I want us to do as we are wrapping up here is to think about two aspects of the death of Christ. Please think with me about two aspects of the death of Christ. The first one is the vicarious nature of Christ's death. And let me help you. What does he mean, vicarious? What does he mean, vicarious? It means on the place of someone else, on behalf of someone else. Jesus died a death taking the place of somebody else, amen? The Bible is very clear that when Jesus died, he died a vicarious, penal substitutionary death. He took the place of sinners. So we see that in many different texts, just a few examples. So for example, Isaiah 53 verse 5, says that the Messiah was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. You see, that's vicarious. He took our place. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. What? For many, on behalf of many people. It's a vicarious death. Paul says, here's the great exchange, that God made the one who did not know sin to be sin. What? For us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Vicarious death. Peter says that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So Jesus fulfilling 
the sacrifice of the Old Testament, all those types, he dies in the place of his people. So keep that in mind, the vicarious nature. Now let's behold the victorious nature of Christ's death. It's not only a vicarious death, but it's a victorious death. Amen? Jesus died not only on behalf of people, a vicarious, but also a triumphant, all-conquering death. And we know that because the New Testament tells us that when Jesus died, he defeated Satan. The power of darkness is under his domain. Satan is his. So we read, now is the judgment, John 12, 11. Now is the judgment of this world. Look at that. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out as he's dying. Colossians 2. He disarmed the rulers, authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ on the cross. Or Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. So Jesus in his death, he bound a strong man, and he plundered him. He took his goods out of his hands. And we are living examples of that. Amen? His victory over the kingdom of darkness taking us, who once were captives to Satan, now to be servants of the Holy God. But not only that, I also accomplished something else. Jesus' death brought forgiveness of sins. So it's the same clarity that the Bible describes the victory of Jesus over Satan through his death. It also describes the forgiveness of sins that our Lord accomplished as he died on the cross. So, for example, in Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have what? Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass. He accomplished forgiveness. Titus 2 talks about Jesus, the Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 1 John 4, 10 and 11. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He is our propitiation. He appeased God's wrath for us. Or Matthew 26, And Jesus took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to the disciples, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is what? My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, Look at that. For many, for the forgiveness of sins. So if Jesus' death truly accomplished, truly accomplished, deliverance from Satan's dominion, freedom from the slavery of the kingdom of darkness, forgiveness of sins, redemption, atonement, reconciliation, propitiation, then brothers and sisters, Jesus cannot have died for every single person. Because he died a vicarious and a victorious death. And if Jesus died a vicarious, Carious and victorious death, either everybody will be in heaven or just a very specific group of people. And if you try to combine the two, you're going to be cuckoo, just like Mark Driscoll, and you have no idea what people are saying that people are in hell and reconciled with God. People are in hell and are no longer rebels. I just cannot understand. 
the vicarious and victorious aspects of the death of Christ cannot be divorced from each other. And that's why we call this also not just limited atonement, but definite atonement. There is a definite purchase, a definite flock for whom Christ died. Amen? The triune God achieved redemption, atonement, forgiveness of sins. Jesus did not make salvation possible. He accomplished salvation. When he died, he died his, his last words is, were, it's finished. Salvation is accomplished. And now why? You're going to say that man needs to save himself. Spurgeon once said, I would rather believe in a limited atonement that is efficacious for all men for whom it was intended than a universal atonement that's not efficacious for anybody except the will of men be added to it. Mm -hmm. Jesus said, I lay down my life for this sheep. This sheep. There's a definite article there. He's not saying that he's laying down his life for the goats. And I know that some people love goats here. I'm just using the Bible's illustration. Christ did not die for the goats. And as he's talking to the religious leaders, we're going to see when it comes to John. He says, you do not believe me because you are not of my sheep. I'm not dying for you. And that's why you are going to remain in your unbelief. When, brothers and sisters, it's, sometimes you think about wars, past wars, and all the men who died in battle to make this country better. Sometimes we, we, we lose the, the personal aspect of that because kind of far away, a group of people. But it's when your house is on fire and that neighbor that you know, walks in, he gets his body all burned to deliver you from that fire. It's when that person that you know puts his body in front of the car so he might be run over instead of you. It's when that person that you know that takes the, bull the bullet instead of you. It's that person that you know that comes and is willing to be maul mauled by a dog devoured by dogs so you can walk away. That's when you, you get a glimpse of how personal deliverance can be. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He's not an abstract person who died for an abstract, faceless mass of people that he did not know personally and individually. No, he personally died for each and every one of those he loved from before the foundation of the world. My Savior had my personal name engraved on his breastplate when he marched to Calvary's cross. Contrary to the preacher in the introduction that said that Jesus' blood was sprinkled over every single one, my Savior had my name, had Charlene's name, had Norm's name. He knew why he was going, for whom he was going that cross. You see, we sang Jesus paid it all. He didn't pay 90% and now you need to pay the 10%. He did not pay 95% and now you need to do the 5% of accepting Jesus. He paid it all 
and all to Him we owe. We don't owe 90%, 99%. We owe 100%. So ultimately, what we are dealing here, when you talk about the extent of the atonement, we are dealing, if our Savior is a Savior who saves, if the cross of Christ is truly effective to accomplish what well, had the purpose to do. You see, that those are not just questions for people in the academic context. That's a question for all of us. We're dealing with the glory of God in the face of Christ. And praise God that in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, we have a Savior who saves, a cross that accomplishes and secures the promise of the new covenant, and in Him we have redemption that never fails. Amen? We have a Savior who knows us by name. When He died, He had each one of His rebels in His hand. Because He knew that they were going to become His slaves. Father, we bow before You and with our faces to the dust, we declare the Christ paid it all. All to Him we owe. Thank You for saving Your people. Thank You, Jesus, for being our perfect High Priest. And when You march to the cross, just like the High Priest in the Old Testament, You had the names of Your people engraved in Your breastplate. And this love is very comforting. That's why Paul can cry out, Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Thank you for your care. Thank you for your mercy. And Lord, those whom your Holy Spirit is touching this morning, those whom for Christ died and today they are receiving the new heart, I pray that they would run to Christ today. Embrace the Savior, the Savior, who had his people writing his heart, a Savior who cares. Help us to glorify you. Keep us humble, Lord. All these doctrines have one wonderful purpose, to glorify your name and humiliate us. Because that's where we need to be always, with our faces to the dust. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.